World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. China's Communist Party has long been suspicious of religion. That's most obvious in its recent treatment of the mostly Muslim Uyghur population. We look into the lesser-known repression of the country's tens of millions of Christians. And it's a dirty job, but be glad someone is doing it. We join researchers who are tracking the prevalence of the coronavirus by scooping up and studying sewage. First up, though. Breaking with nearly a century of precedent, America's President Joe Biden formally referred last weekend to the 1915 killings of Armenians in the Ottoman Empire as a genocide. In a statement, Biden said, We affirm the history. We do this not to cast blame, but to ensure that what happened is never repeated. During the First World War, Ottoman authorities suspected Armenians in the empire of conspiring with Russia. So they ordered a mass deportation. More than a million Armenians are believed to have died in forced marches, famines, and massacres. This week, Armenians celebrated Mr. Biden's recognition of that history. Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan wrote in a letter to Biden that Armenians worldwide welcomed the message with great enthusiasm. But Turkey, which rose from the Ottoman Empire, has always disputed that designation. Protesters gathered at the American embassy in Istanbul. And President Recep Tayyip Erdogan called on America to reverse what he called a wrong step immediately. He said already relations with America were at a new low. But ultimately, the greater cost of Mr. Biden's speech might be scuppering a chance, a slim one, of normalizing relations between Turkey and Armenia. Biden is stepping into sensitive territory here. The history of the 1915 massacres is very much alive between these two countries, Armenia and Turkey. Piotr Zalewski is The Economist's Turkey correspondent. Now, Armenia has insisted for decades that the massacres and the deportations amount to nothing short of genocide. Most historians of the period have come to the same conclusion, as have most European governments and now the U.S., Turkey, on the other hand, accepts that hundreds of thousands of Armenians died as a result of wartime conditions, but continues to contest the scale of the deaths and denies that they would constitute genocide. And you mentioned that that history is is very much alive. I mean, what is the state of relations between Turkey and Armenia today? Well, the state of relations between Turkey and Armenia today is non-existent. And in a recent conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh, the disputed territory in Azerbaijan, which is populated by ethnic Armenians, 
Turkey sided with Azerbaijan. And thanks in large part to the support, Azerbaijan won the war. And in December, Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, appeared alongside the Azerbaijani president in a victory parade in the capital of Azerbaijan, Baku. That parade featured the wreckage of Armenian tanks, as well as the Turkish drones that had pounded them into the ground. Recep Tayyip Erdogan. But Mr. Erdogan not only basked in victory, he also made a vague offer of a resolution between Turkey and Armenia. How do you mean a victory parade against Armenia seems a bad place to extend an olive branch? Well, you know, some would dispute whether it was a genuine offer of peace, but Erdogan spoke of a possible, quote-unquote, new era in Turkish-Armenian relations. You know, Turkey closed its border with Armenia in 1993 during the first Karabakh War and did so out of solidarity with Azerbaijan. The consensus in Turkey was that as long as Armenia occupied Azerbaijani territory, Turkey would not open the border. Now, as Turks see it at least, that obstacle has been removed. Azerbaijan has recovered at least part of Nagorno-Karabakh and the territory around it. And in fact, the opening of the borders would give Turkey access not only to the region, but to the Caspian and to Central Asia, would create a corridor between those regions. And it would offer Armenia access to markets in Turkey and beyond. And so what effect do you think it has Joe Biden weighing in now with this allegation of of genocide when at least the possibility of detente is on the table? Previous American presidents have described the events of 1915 as genocide on the campaign trail, and they have promised to recognize the Armenian genocide while in office, except that while in office, they backtracked largely because they feared the damage that genocide recognition would do to relations with Turkey, a key NATO ally. And I think with Biden, that fear has subsided. It has subsided largely because there are so many other crises between Turkey and America today, given the disagreements over Syria and Turkey's human rights record, Turkish accusations of American involvement in a 2016 coup d'etat, genocide recognition barely makes the top 10 list of problems between Turkey and the U.S. The response from Turkey has been quite strong, at least on the rhetorical level. But Turkey, given the state of its economy and given the fact that it seems to be on the brink of another currency crisis, cannot afford another major dispute with the U.S. Now, interestingly, some Turkish officials have also suggested that genocide recognition might compromise Mr. Erdogan's previous offer, uh, however credible it might be, of reconciliation with Armenia. So in that sense, has what Mr. Biden done essentially been against America's own interests, do you think? Normalization between Turkey and Armenia would certainly be a boon for the entire region, but there isn't any longer a consensus that this would be hugely beneficial to American interests. For ages, Western diplomats 
have believed that a settlement between Turkey and NATO power and Armenia would diminish Russia's influence in the Caucasus, where today the opposite might actually be true. So instead of pulling Armenia into the West orbit, normalization could draw Turkey deeper into Russia's. And what do you mean by that? Armenia joined a Russian-led trading bloc a few years ago. Russia is certainly interested in having Turkey engage with that trading bloc. Uh, Russian troops have patrolled the Armenian side of the border with Turkey ever since the fall of the Soviet Union. And given the outcome of the Nagorno-Karabakh war and given the fear of Turkey in Armenia, it's very likely that the Armenian government would insist that the Russian troops stay there. So even in the case of normalization, Russia does not stand to lose much influence in the Caucasus. Well, the one party that we haven't spoken about here is the Armenians themselves. How, how do they want this to play out? What do they think is in their interests? Armenians, in theory, would like to see normalization with Turkey, but not with this Turkey. You know, the closest that Turkey and Armenia came to normalization was in 2009, when the presidents of both Turkey and Armenia visited one another's countries. In 2008-2009, the Turkey that Armenia saw was a Turkey that was making at least some headway towards membership with the EU. It was a Turkey that, in some ways, was democratizing. It was a Turkey that paid you know, lip service, at least, to human rights. Whereas the Turkey that Armenia sees today is a Turkey that's much more nationalistic, much more expansionist, much more ready to use military power. So any offers of peace by Turkey might not sound very genuine to Armenian ears. Piotr, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for yours. 7 in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Following China's revolution in 1949, the Communist Party began cutting links with foreign churches. Believers were allowed to worship only in government-authorized venues. After the death of Mao Zedong in 1976, restrictions were relaxed. There was an explosion of Christian worship. Foreign missionaries, often working as teachers, poured back in. But today, although state-approved churches exist, much Christian worship takes place unofficially, behind locked doors in people's homes. Small groups gather to pray and sing. Concerned that Christianity is not only growing, but doing so out of sight, the Chinese leadership is once again trying to restrict the religion. When the Communist Party took over in 1949, there were about three million Christians in China. 
Rob Gifford is a senior editor at The Economist. Now, it's very hard to know exactly how many Christians there are, but people say probably somewhere between 60 and 80 million. That's Protestants and Catholics. Three quarters of them probably are Protestants, and about half of those attend unofficial house churches. So you've got this division within Christianity between the official churches, which are government-authorized, and the house churches. And it's mainly these house churches that the government's most afraid of, And the things they're most afraid of, basically, are they've seen the role of religion in other uprisings around the world in the last 30 years, and they're worried that these uncontrolled Christians within the house churches could become politicized and dangerous to the power and control of the party. So what is the party doing to allay those concerns? Well, what the Communist Party is doing is it has announced in the last few years this policy called signification. And this has come with its own five-year plan in true Communist Party style to try to make the five recognized religions within China, that's Buddhism, Taoism, Islam, Catholicism, and Protestantism, to make them more Chinese. And specifically, as a crucial part of that, to not only culturally be more Chinese, but to politically more adhere to the Communist Party line. And what does that practice of signification look like for practicing Christians then? Well, it really only has an impact on the official churches because the house churches are not under the Communist Party's control. So within the official churches, what we've seen is a real emphasis on trying to merge Christian theology with socialist ideology. And that involves trying to persuade the preachers in their message not to focus on issues that are more controversial, for instance, uh, talking about freedom, but more to emphasize issues like helping out in society. And there's even talk that the party is thinking of doing a retranslation of the Bible to emphasize certain areas that it likes. If it actually did that, I think that would cause real problems for the Christians because I think they would not be prepared to use the Communist Party Bible. So how effective has the party been so far at signifying Christians? With the Roman Catholics, the Communist Party did a deal in 2018 with the Vatican which was a sort of compromise that gave both sides a say, supposedly, in the appointment of bishops. But lots of Catholics are now worried that the Communist Party is reneging on this. In the state-approved Protestant churches, it's a slightly different situation, obviously, because you don't have the outside power of the Vatican. But there, too, there's been lots of opposition. But there's no doubt, even with that pushback, that official Protestant churches have been really put under pressure to make sure that political controls within the church are much, much stricter. But you've made a distinction here between the official and the unofficial Protestant churches. That's right. And it is the unofficial churches that they're most worried about. And that is where most of the problems are for the Communist Party, as you might expect. The fact is, though, that most of the unofficial churches, the house churches, they're not very political, broadly speaking. There have been a couple of cases of very political pastors making very political statements. So the most famous is a man called Wang Yi, who was the pastor of a large house church in Chengdu in southwest China, who said from the pulpit that Xi Jinping was a sinner and needed to repent. 
And a lot of people immediately thought that was a dangerous thing to say. And indeed, he has recently been sent to jail for nine years. Most house churches do not go that far. They may not love the Communist Party, but they just want to get on with their faith. I mean, this certainly sounds like uncomfortable pressure, but it's still far short of the the kind of crackdown we've heard about in, in the case of the majority Muslim Uyghur population. That's exactly right. And that's true because the Christians are mainly ethnically Han. So something like 90% of the Chinese population is Han Chinese. The worry for the Communist Party is that the Turkic peoples, like the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs in the Northwest, don't actually want to be part of China. So there's a whole separatist concern with the signification of Chinese Islam. They're worried that it feeds into a separatist impulse, and the same with the Tibetan Buddhists. And so within the Christian population, their concern is much less about that and much more about Christians becoming politicized. There, though, the Communist Party has a different problem in that the Christians are not in one geographical region, as the Uyghurs are in Xinjiang. Uh, The Christians are throughout every area of China geographically and at all levels of society, from the poor peasants to the wealthy industrialists of the coast. So their problem is to try to corral and coax the Christians to stay within the bounds that they want to see, making Christianity more Chinese, and to bring them into the tent so they don't cause any problems in future. But where exactly will that stop, do you think? There is a making it more Chinese and there is a stamping it out altogether. One gets the feeling that in some cases they would just simply like these religions not to be. I think that's completely true. I think they've realized that they can't stamp out religion. That's what Mao tried to do, basically. And as with lots of persecutions, the stronger the persecution, the more the church grows. And making sure that the Christians who are there, even if they're in the house churches, are law-abiding, that they're not politically active, and that they just stay within their religious box. The question, again, from history looking around the world at what has happened in religious movements elsewhere is whether that's going to be possible. And I'm not convinced that it will be. Rob, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. As cholera repeatedly decimated 19th century London, the presumed cause was miasma, or noxious air. But a local doctor, John Snow, found the real cause. He plotted cholera cases on a map and traced the disease back to water from a pump in Broad Street that had been contaminated by sewage. Many reckon that Dr. Snow's map marked the birth of modern epidemiology. These days, researchers are returning to the sewers, trying this time to track the spread of a virus that has the whole world's attention. The principle of this is pretty much the same as the hobby you might have done when you were a child, that charming thing where you take a bucket, go along to a pond, put the bucket on a stick and dip the bucket in and then lift it out and see what delightful creatures you've got swimming around in it. With the small alteration that the pond you're dipping it into is a river of sewage, And the thing that you're getting out is basically the nation's feces in a bucket. They're looking for COVID and how much COVID is in that bucket that you've just taken out of a sewer. Catherine Nixie writes about Britain for The Economist. 
To find out more about this, on a lovely sunny spring day, I travelled to North Wales and met David Jones, Professor of Soil and Environmental Science at Bangor University. We went to a sewage plant, essentially to collect some poo. What you do is you take off the manhole cover and then you start to hear this sound. It's quite an amazing sound. It's like a rushing alpine stream. Literally, it's just putting the bucket in and then fetching it out. And you can see it's got a nice suspended solids load, some identifiable bits of object in there. Looks like some sweet corn floating around in the bottom, so it's (laughs) clearly of uh, human origin, I think, here. Um, And at this time of day, it's quite turbid. And I think that reflects, you know, the time that people go into the toilet in the morning. If we came here, say, at six o'clock in the morning and sampled the sewage, the levels of virus would be really tiny Mm -hmm. because SARS-CoV-2 only is shared in fecal material, Mm -hmm. very rarely in urine. So we need to pick the right time to be here, which is the right time after everybody's been to the toilet. And there's a lot of this variant of pond dipping going on? Yeah, so people are doing this all across the UK. It's amazing. What you can find out is a sort of instant snapshot of the state of COVID infection in that area. So at the moment, if you were to dip a bucket into one of these sewers, you'd get around a thousand maybe virus particles per litre of wastewater. At the peak of the second wave in January, you would be getting between a million and 10 million virus particles. So it instantly shows you what is going on and the rough area that it's going on in. Why go about what seems like a very crude measurement rather than the much more seemingly precise coronavirus testing? The short answer is is that stools are so much easier to deal with than people. If you want to test uh, people, you have to set up a testing centre. You have to have staff in the testing centre. You have to tell people what to do and where to go. And most importantly of all, you have to have the people actually turn up. As a sampling technique, the toilet is a very egalitarian one because you will naturally get certain biases appearing on who will go to a testing centre depending on how conscientious people are, perhaps how much time they can take off work, whereas everybody goes to the toilet even if everybody wouldn't go to a testing centre. I mean, surely these arguments stand also for other pathogens. Yeah, you can get information on polio, typhoid. That was checked during the Second World War because people were worried that German bombing might disrupt sewers and cause a typhoid outbreak. You can check cholera from the origins of this. And you can check things like illegal drugs. They can screen sewage water and do for things such as cocaine. I had even one scientist suggest that you could test a certain area's stress levels by looking at what's in the sewage. In the future, I think one of the most interesting things about this is that you can check antimicrobial resistance by looking at kind of the biome of the sewer. But it has to be said the average sewer pipe doesn't uh, have the same conditions then as the average human body. No, and this is certainly not kind of lab-level controlled experiment. So there's all sorts of stuff goes into a sewer as well as sewage. So you get industrial waste gets dumped in there. I was talking to a scientist who said that coffee granules can be particularly disruptive and they get dumped in there. And every time it rains instantly, the levels of whatever viruses you're checking are going to be massively diluted because the sewage is diluted. So if you take into account for all of these things, then you can quite clearly get enough data to make it worthwhile. Thanks for your time, Catherine. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. 
The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Seven in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company.